Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Dallas Christian College Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Spees, Director of Advancement here at the college, and we appreciate you joining us as we continue in our series of podcasts focusing on current topics and events that are shaping our society, the world of education, and the local church. Periodically, we are revisiting our very popular series of podcasts that we have titled Spending Time with the Text. And sharing his insights into the Christ hymns today is Dr. Corey Allen, Professor of Worship Arts at DCC. Dr. Allen has been a regular guest on our podcast and has focused on the background for several liturgical seasons this past year, as well as sharing in our Spending Time with the Text series. So it's good to have you today with us, Dr. Allen. Thank you, Scott. Joining us as well is the voice of the DCC Leadership Podcast, Mr. Mark Worley, the Vice President of Institutional Advancement here at the college. And I'm going to turn it over to you, Mark, and let you facilitate today's discussion with Dr. Allen. Yeah, thanks, Scott. I, I'm really looking forward to this uh, when, when we're talking about hymns that are found in the scripture that a lot of times we just kind of fly through and don't really realize it's a hymn. Mm-hmm. And you kind of wonder, okay, what kind of uh, tune did they use <laughs> and stuff like that. So, uh, in fact, just the other day, I was uh, teaching a Bible study at uh, uh, Compass Christian Church in Roanoke, and we were, were going through Philippians, and in Philippians 2, I, there's a passage of Scripture that's really popular. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people know it, and in fact, we have some current modern songs about it, and uh, some of the people didn't realize, hey, this is a hymn, and they were interested. They were like, hey, what what does this mean? I mean, wh- you have a hymn that's uh that paul is alluding to mm-hmm. in several different places and then all of a sudden it's like hey what what's the deal how did him start what does this mean by that understood and there, there's a lot of questions i think even wrapped up in what you just asked there you know is this a text that paul has in an inspiration moment from the holy spirit written for this particular document philippians in the case uh, we were just talking about, or is this a hymn that he is familiar with? Are the churches like everywhere from, you know, Macedonia to Jerusalem singing this hymn, and he's giving a quote that everybody knows already? Right. And that's one of those questions we really don't have a good answer for. I wish we did, but we've never found one of these hymns with like sheet music <laughs> or with or even with a description of this is how they sang it or when they sang it in the year. Uh, so unfortunately, what we're left with is that we have the hymn text. And if you've ever had like an a older hymnal from like pre-1850, you'll notice that most of these hymnals don't have any music in them at all. It's just words of poetry. And in many ways, that's exactly what we have with the New Testament. We have a lot of speculation on how these these really important texts, like Philippians 2, 6 through 11, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and as you wanted to make sure I brought up, also things like 1 <laughs> Timothy 3, 16, uh, all of these texts are specifically hymnic in that they are poetic following the rules of Greek poetry. And just kind of like if you are an English speaker and you've never read the book Green Eggs and Ham, if you picked up Green Eggs and Ham and you just started reading it, you would notice instantly, oh, this isn't like the Chronicles of Narnia. This follows rules of English poetry. 
Now, what made the identification of these things difficult and why we really only started talking about them as hymns within like the last hundred years of scholarship is because, quite frankly, a lot of people didn't focus much on what were the rules of ancient Greek poetry. And so when a lot of classic scholars begin saying, oh, by the way, this text that is highly Christological, highly important to the argument throughout these Pauline letters, it also follows some of these rules of poetry. Uh, so, Dr. Allen, would, would it also include, I mean, we're, we're used to the Psalms, mm-hmm. and apparently they were songs that were written by David, and mm-hmm. we don't have the sheet music for that either. I, I think it might have been rap. I'm not sure. but, <laughs> but I mean, if, if our God is gracious and just, it will be rap. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but, okay, so would the New Testament hymns be similar to the Psalms, for example? They do have some similarities. For example, one of the biggest similarities is that they use parallelism. Now, parallelism is not the idea idea of like the cat set on the hat that's you know English rhyming parallelism is the idea of rhyming languages uh, or or the the uh, the idea of rhyming ideas more like it like for example um, uh, in Psalm 19 we have the the phrase the earth is the Lord's and all who dwell there in it uh, the the breath of the heavens and the fullness of the seas it's a the breath of the heavens and the fullness of the seas is another way to say, the earth and all that dwell in it. It is a rhyming idea. Mm. or And so uh, that is what is often known as, uh, as synonymous parallelism, where the idea is, is a synonym for, uh, for the first part that is rhymed in the second. We also have things like anthetical parallelism, where we have a idea that is contrasted with its opposite. So those are two examples of uh, of Hebrew poetry with parallelism, and that also shows up a lot in our Christ hymns as well. So I mean, you know, when you think of a hymn, mm-hmm. obviously you think of maybe, uh, and again, there wasn't a church building until around 350 A.D. So you know, you, you kind of think of uh, maybe in a house church and somebody's. Uh, I mean, you think of either like a Gregorian chant mm-hmm. or uh, in a house church singing Kumbaya. I'm sure they sang that. <laughs> back so, I, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, Bruce is shaking his head. It's uh, I'm just saying it's it's old. It's an old song. Uh, so, you know, you, you go all the way uh, to that. I mean, it, are, were these meant to well, be like spoken as a group or? Okay. Yeah. Paul gives us one possible hint of this when we are reading in 1 Corinthians, where he is describing some of the chaos in the Corinthian worship service. And he says, every one of you comes in wanting to, you know, to sing a hymn. But he also says, and sometimes y'all have a word of prophecy. Sometimes y'all have a speaking in tongue. And he basically says, I want all this to be done in order. But I think one of the things we can get from that is that the Christians are excited to bring this hymnic material. Now, whether or not that is the Psalms plus things they're writing uh, that is part of the debate. But it does seem pretty conclusive that, at least as early as Paul corresponding with the Corinthians, that Christians are excited to be bringing these hymnic uh, expressions into their worship. Uh, 
So, so again, when we think hymn, we think of something to sing. Yes. But it may be a chant. It could be a chant. Uh, and again, like a lot of poetry, we memorize poetry because because it is following these rules and therefore makes it a mnemonic aid. And I think that it's uh, it is no coincidence that all of these Christ hymns are also extremely doctrinally loaded. <laughs> they have a lot of information about Christ. They have a lot of information about what Christ has done. And part of that is just this idea of if we can set that in a terse, concise, and for the Greek culture in a, we'll call it rhyming, even though it's not rhyming as we would understand it, if we can do it in a way that will make it easy to memorize people take that home with them. Mm. You know, how often do we hear, you went to, to church to hear the sermon, but you came home singing How Great Thou Art. I mean, you know, you, you the things that you internalize by song tend to be the things that are easiest to take with you. Yeah. You know, or, I mean, would this be like a whole congregation, uh, and I've been in a lot of congregations where they close a prayer with the model prayer. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, the Lord's Prayer. Would that be similar? It's hard to say how it was used. Again, uh, we have a very large gap in the, um, we'll call it the liturgical record, of what Christians were actually doing in their services. Some of the earliest documents we have for this date to about 200, maybe 250 A.D. And when we do start to see those, we do see some of those New Testament hymns have become common practice. For example, the four hymns that we see early in uh, Luke chapter 1 and 2 have become very common in Christian usage by this time. Also, some of the hymns we find in John's uh, Revelation, the Apocalypse, where we see things like the Holy, 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 and the Worthy is the Lamb hymns that have made it into common usage. This is what also made identifying these particular Paul Christ hymns so difficult, is that they don't seem like they have went into the common everyday usage like the Luke hymns or like the apocalyptic hymns did. So uh, you just mentioned Revelation, and mm-hmm. I, I, I always think of the Revelation song, you know, holy, holy. Yes. Uh, so, so how does, I mean, would that be a similar type of thing where, where modern uh, contemporary Christian music uh, a lot of times picks up scripture phrases. So how would that, how would modern uh, hymns be viewed maybe a couple of okay. hundred years from now? Uh, well, I, I, it's hard to say how anyone's going to view it a hundred years from now. It, I mean, you know, it's largely going to be dependent on, you know, theologically where we go. And I I have a feeling we're going to get a mixed bag of assessment. If I had to assess one of the major differences, though, between a lot of hymn writing that's happening now versus a lot of these Christ hymns that we see in the New Testament, probably the biggest difference is that in our English language, contemporary Christian music, we're often being given words to say to God or words to say to Christ. It is, in many ways, it is ways to help us enunciate our relationship with Christ and do so in a prayerful way, that they are made for dialogue. 
One of the differences, though, from these New Testament Christ hymns is that, as I said, they're very dense with theology. They're very dense with doctrine. And because of that, I think one of the ways that if we're just doing a compare and contrast, a lot of modern Christian worship leads to what I would often call a a black box prayer. And by a black box prayer, I simply mean this, that I can... I can in some ways project a image of Christ onto something. Like, for example, if I have like a, a phrase that says, Lord, you are good. Well, what do I mean by good? What do I mean by Lord? You know, a lot of these things are undefined. But if I say, for example, in the Philippians hymn, the one who is in very nature God did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. Instead, he poured himself out and made himself nothing. I am giving a much more succinct set of doctrine, and I start to limit what do I mean when I say Christ? What do I mean when I say Lord? And what that does is that forces us to actually say, what is the correct object of our worship? Yeah, Dr. Franklin uh, has a has a, uh, a podcast with us. Uh, yeah, it's actually the one that will be... Uh Last week's podcast, if you haven't checked it out, it will be the one prior to this one. So it, yeah. this follows well on the heels it of It really does. Mm -hmm. So uh, Dr. Franklin was talking about, you know, teaching churches how or what worship is. And it's not just the sermon. Mm -hmm. it, includes, it includes everything. So it, it seems like there's a morphing. Uh, you know, it morphs about Jesus to Jesus, about us and Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh You've talked about uh, sometimes uh, the uh, Robert Weber mm -hmm. would call this, and in some cases it morphs into uh, a kind of a narcissism. Yes, and of course, narcissism is a focus on the self of, and one of the kind of signs that you are dealing with worship narcissism is that you are you are using a lot of I and we language and often a very nebulous you pronoun as well. But here, here is the one example I give with my students in the theology of worship class. Uh, if I were to uh, have a conversation with my wife and my wife were to tap me and go, Corey, we need to talk. <laughs> it would be the wrong response to go, all right, but first, can I sing this song about how beautiful you are? Oh, your eyes, and you know, and, and I go on this, this long tangent about how beautiful I believe my wife is, which I do believe it's true, but she wants to talk. She is wanting to guide the conversation in very different ways. And when you have too much I, me, we language in your, in your psalms and in your hymns, what you eventually end up getting is this idea that this worship service is about my turn to talk to God instead of letting the scripture and the sermon and the doctrines of, these, of some of these really classic hymn texts talk to us. Mm, that's good. So, you know, if if the person who's listening to podcasts is like, man, I really like to sing worship songs to God. Now mm -hmm. I'm a little freaked out and paranoid. Am I doing okay or not okay? Or, you know, this is where I look at it as uh, a man by the name of Mark Hicks uh, says that one of the jobs of a worship leader is to be a 
a worship dietitian. And what he means by that is we need to vary the diet. When we say, I love Jesus, when we say, we as a congregation love Jesus, and we do so in a song, that has its place. But just as the person is never going to be healthy if all they eat is chocolate cake, (laughs) you know, we need a variety and assortment. And so what I would say to anyone who says, oh, great, I love those songs, good. They help you express your relationship to Christ and God, often in very healthy ways. The question is, is that all I do when I sing? And if so, I may be having an unbalanced diet of worship material. And I would even go further. If, if the only expression of worship is singing, yes, then we have overbalanced and, Absolutely. and, and, and gone in extreme in that way as well. So, so what do we do about it? Okay, so what do we do about it? Well, one of the things that I think is very helpful, and we can use the Philippians Christ hymn as a good jumping off point because I think it really expresses a lot of this idea, is that when Paul begins the Christ hymn, before he ever lays you know, any of the track down, starting in verse 6, in verse 5 he says, Let this mind, which is in Christ, be in you. That part of the reason Paul is saying, I want you to know about this God you worship is because I want you to start looking, acting, and doing in ways that are Christ-like. If I could quote the church father Athanasius, one of the things that he says is that Christ becomes human so that humanity can become more like God. And in many ways, these Christ hymns basically say, so let us divulge for you the nature of this being so that you can then take up that cross and follow him as well. So one of the pivotal verbs that shows up in that hymn is in verse 7 where it says, uh, and most of our English translations will say, he made himself nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word there is kenosis, uh, or kenosko, to pour out. And a lot of uh, commentators, for example, if you ever uh, want to do a deep dive on this, there is a book by Matthew Gordley called New Testament Christological Hymns. Uh, it was published here in 2018, and he really explores this idea of what he calls canonic thinking. What does it look like to have a mindset where you are pouring yourself out as our Lord poured himself out? And one of the things that I think he really gets at is that by pondering these facts about what Christ has done leads us to, in many ways, reconsider our relationship with power. And he basically says the starting point for this is if you have the description of a being who is in very nature God, not considering equality with God as something to be grasped onto, to be held onto, but instead pours himself out. It basically opens up this idea of, well, we have a, the most powerful being in the universe for the first 30 years of his life, growing up in a no-name town, <laughs> the son of a day laborer, <laughs> The son of a woman who, let's be honest, in that time would have probably been like, you know, I know you married your husband, but we could do the math. <laughs> you know, there, 
there is a sense where, you know, this is not the place you put yourself to start having an important life. Mm. But for the first 30 years of Christ's life, that's exactly just who he is. He is just a good man in obscurity being a nobody. And, you know, I think that that's an important part of where this hymn goes, because after this hymn says that he, that the culmination of this is he is obedient to death, even a death on a cross. Where we're going, what, what we start with is this idea of there's that 30 years of silence that is still an important part of the incarnation. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, <laughs> really interesting. Yeah, so I, I like the song "I Love You, Lord." Mm-hmm. You know, and I lift my voice. Yeah, to worship you. Yeah, the, you know, I I, I do hear uh, different different songwriters like Michael Card. Mm-hmm. You know, guys like him that that really do some. And I'm trying to remember. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, Chris Chris Rice uh, recently that did a, a song. He is worthy. Uh, that kind of thing where it's almost a, a descant. It, mm-hmm. It's a uh, echo. And it's written by a guy who's a good friend of, uh, of President Brian Smith. But, but he, he uses scripture and he walks through uh, his albums, walk through scripture. And, I, you know, I have to admit, you know, sometimes it's, it's like, okay, that's pretty cool, but it's hard to sing. It's a little uh-huh. bit harder to sing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Agreed. Uh, one of the problems of singing directly from Scripture is the very fact that it follows Greek rules of poetry, not English. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so it doesn't rhyme. It doesn't have the same number of, you know, syllables per line. Right. And so it, it has a lot of things that make it difficult to sing. And uh, this is something that uh, a... Um, theologian named Calvin Stamper points out is that this is what is called logocentric songwriting. It is word-centered songwriting that the moment you say, okay, I might have to sacrifice things like meter. I might have to sacrifice things like singability if I believe these words genuinely matter. Mm, And that, you know, that that's, you know, for, for hymn writers in general, that's a big question. Do these words matter so much that I'm willing to sacrifice even my English language and culture aesthetics in order to make those words plain? We're about out of time. We really are. But, okay, just very quickly, could you name off like two or three contemporary musicians that would be uh, interesting to listen to that, that kind of get this right? Okay. Well, I, uh, I, I won't necessarily say that they are individual musicians, but I can say there are certain publishing houses that are doing this better than others. So, for example, uh, the uh, Calvin Institute for Worship out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, is constantly recording uh, new music, both for Christ hymns, New Testament canticles, as well as Old Testament psalms, and trying to put those in various and interesting ways. I've also been pretty impressed by the work of a uh, gentleman by the name of Jeremy Mayfield. He uh, does a uh, website called singasalm.com. And while he doesn't just focus on the Old Testament Psalms, his idea is let's take these words that are scriptural and try to make them 
come across without having to thoroughly anglicize them and metricize them to make it happen. Hmm. Really good stuff. That's excellent. Hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Allen, for being well, here. Thank you. You for can check me. out our other episodes, including the one that we referenced, which would be uh, Dr. Nanelle Franklin's uh, podcast on worship uh, and the formative nature of worship and what takes place on the in in the worship experience on Sunday morning. I think you'll find it particularly engaging if, if you haven't listened to it already uh, after what Dr. Allen and, and Mark Worley shared today. Uh, you can check out our episodes on different platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. We encourage you to do that. And if you'd like to learn more about Dallas Christian College, particularly our worship arts degree and those programs, as well as available scholarships, you can do that by checking out www.dallas.edu. Thank you again for joining us for this episode of the Dallas Leadership Podcast. Pray that you have a great day. Take care, stay safe, and we'll catch you next time.